Praise the Lord. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at a woman by the name of Deborah, and we're going to look at the people of God and how they responded to the word of the Lord, which is why we, we entitle this Deborah and the word of the Lord. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, the people of Israel again, <laughs> not just once, again, have you ever felt like, oh man, I really messed up? Well, just be patient. You'll probably find that you mess up again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The command of his army, uh, commander of his armies was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to him, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going would not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. So, let me give you a little recap here, a little introduction, how we got here in, uh, in our text in Israel's history, God sent Moses to Egypt where they had been living as slaves to free them from their oppressors and then bring them into the land that God had promised them through their father, their ancestor, Abram. After a period of 40 years of wandering around the desert after they came out of Egypt, ultimately because they didn't believe God, they didn't believe that God could do what he said he was going to do, and uh, the, the people wandered for 40 years, and the, they finally came back to that point where they had the opportunity to go into the promised land. And uh, this was done under the new leader. Moses had passed away, and now Joshua was leading. Joshua took them over the Jericho River into the promised land, and he began to help them to conquer the enemies, and bring them into the inheritance that God had promised them. After the death of Joshua, we see cycles of Israel's walk as they went from periods of revival and rest into periods of apostasy and oppression. Up, down, up, down. Kind of like a, a boot camp, right? Up, down. <laughs> Give me 100 push-ups. Up, down. All right. So anyway, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, that we can learn basically what the, uh, we'll read that scripture here in a minute, but what it's going to tell you is that we can learn from what they went through. The things that they went through, the things that they struggled with, the victories that God gave them, they all can teach us something in 1 Corinthians 10 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So what I want to look at is I want to, I want to dive into this text a little bit and see what we can learn that'll help us to uh, live out the life that God has called us to live in Christ. Amen? Now, as I was reading this, I realized I could preach three or four messages on this thing without even batting an eye, but I'm going to try to just really limit what I see in here to, an op to, to just the time that we have remaining the next three hours. <laughs> and you're like, uh-oh. Uh, close the doors, lock them. All right, no. Um, and see what we can learn over the next few minutes that will help us in our walk with God. So the first thing we see in the text, first thing I want to bring out is that the people cried out to God. Judges 4, 1 through 3, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera, 
and the people of Israel cried out to God for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people. And it adds this in there, cruelly. He didn't just oppress them, but he cruelly oppressed them for 20 years. So as the people experienced another round of oppression by the enemies around them, they realized that they were helpless to deal with the situation they found themselves in, as well as experiencing the misery of being under the thumb of a cruel and oppressing enemy. As a result, it got so bad that they figured out, we better, we better ask God for help. You know, it's kind of like, whether we realize it or not, we're kind of like that as well. So, man, I've tried this, I've done this, I've done everything I know how to do. I guess the last thing for me to do is i got to cry out to God. Not realizing, the first thing we need to do is cry out to God. We often make the last thing we do, cry out to God. And that's what they did. They finally decided to pray and ask for God's intervention in their life. How many of you know that the Bible says in John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy? How many of y'all believe the Word of God is the Word of God? Right? God's not trying to lie to you. He's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. You may not believe it, but the Bible actually teaches that the, the bad doesn't come from God. It comes from an enemy. But the enemy is so good at his job, and I'm not praising the enemy, I'm not saying that at all, but he's so good at his job that he actually gets people to believe that God is the source of their misery. The truth is, the Bible teaches it's our turning away from God that opens the door to the enemy who is the true source of our afflictions. Once we realize that truth, we can humble ourselves and call on God and, 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 and pray that God would once again uh, intervene in our life and in our behalf. Second Chronicles 7.14 kind of sums this up by saying, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's an Old Testament promise under an old covenant, and yet I want you to know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we serve, in a, we serve God under a better covenant. So if this was the promise under the old covenant, how much more under the new covenant where Jesus Christ paid for our sins and our transgressions, and in Him, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness. Cleanse us from most unrighteousness. No, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're under a better covenant. So the people cried out to God. Second thing we see is Deborah declared the word of the Lord. Now, oftentimes what happens is when we cry out to God, we oftentimes expect that God's just automatically going to come in and do something about it. But what you'll find more often than not is that when you're praying, then all of a sudden God will, will reveal to you His will, His purpose, his word for the, your life and for the situation that you're going through. Deborah, in response to the Israelites crying out to God, Deborah, who is a prophetess, uh, declared to them the word of the Lord. Judges 4, 4 through 7, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the Barak, the son of Abinoam, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So, first thing we want to look at underneath this, and where we're going to go with this, is that they're crying out to God, and God, and I would imagine that they're hoping that God would just this incredible victory, incredible thing in their life, but what they get instead is they get the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord that we're going to get there in a minute, we're going to see it, we're going to go through a process to get there, but the word of the Lord was, this is the word of the Lord, I'm going to deal with your enemies, but the way I'm going to deal with your enemies enemies is by calling you out to fight. Well, no, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to fight. We want God to fight for us, but we don't want to fight. 
It's kind of like whenever we have, we had a men's meeting last night. Whenever we have a men's meeting, sometimes we have what's called a men's breakfast. And when we have a men's breakfast, uh, you know, because, you know, people, they want to eat, but they don't always want to get here too early. Uh, we'll have the men's breakfast at 9 o'clock. And everybody comes out whenever we have food. I'm just telling man, man, you, you invite men to food, they're going to be there. But while we're calling, we'll always, can you come early? Can you come early and help us cook? And, and, and uh, it'd be surprised you get a couple of people will come early, but most people don't want to come early and help prepare the food. I'm not talking about our men. I'm talking about other people's men, okay? Because our men are different, right? But the reality is, what will happen is, no, nah, I can't be there, no, 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 no. But 9 o'clock comes, and they're the first ones in line wanting food. Because they want the food prepared for them, but they don't want to be involved in what's necessary in order to experience that food. Right? And so here's the thing with the Israelites. They, I would imagine, when they were calling out to God, wanted God to intervene. But I don't know that they expected that the word of the Lord would come, that now is the time to fight. So anyway, that's what we're looking at here. First of all, we need to understand a couple of things about the word of the Lord. Uh, there are two things, uh, really, when we talk about the word of the Lord that we want to bring out this morning. And it's called the Logos word, and it's called the Rhema word. What is a Logos word? A Logos word is the revealed, uh, already expressed, written word of God. What we have here, we would call this the Logos word. Okay, God has already shown us what His Word is, what His will is, and we learn about God, we learn about the ways of God, we do all that as we read His revealed Word, as we uh, intake His revealed Word, as we allow the Word of God into our life. The Logos Word is that which God has already made known and that which is revealed concerning the will of God. As far as the Israelites were concerned, what had been and what was the revealed will of God to them? Well, in Joshua, the people, the reason they're in the promised land is because God had already revealed what His will was to them. It says in Joshua 1 and uh, one. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, after the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm given to them, the people of Israel, and every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. What was the revealed will of God? I'm taking you over to the promise land and you're going to possess the land that it's, it's said in different places you're going to overcome you're going to defeat the Canaanites the Hittites the Perizzites the you know, all these uh, things that are in the land you're going to fight against them and you're going to defeat them because I'm with you but it's important that when you go in there and you defeat them that you totally uh, defeat them and that you continue living for me continue to follow the Lord continue following the word of God that is the revealed will of God. What did we see in our text? The Israelites forsook the Lord and began to serve the gods of the Canaanites. What had happened was they, instead of moving the Canaanites out, they said it's too hard. Uh, they, they fight too much. So they began to move from a victory mentality to accommodation mentality. And when they began to accommodate the enemy in their land, they didn't get rid of their idols. They didn't get rid of these things. They began to, over a process of time, instead of them being an influence on the land, the land became an influence on them. And then all of a sudden, they found themselves doing what they thought they would never do, but God knew what they were going to do. They began to worship the idols in the land. And when they began to worship the idols in the land, they abandoned the God that delivered them from Egypt. You say, well, wait a minute. How did, they, how did they abandon them? Because God said, I am the Lord your God. He is the Lord our God. And Him only shall we serve. You cannot serve God and idols. 
There is no syncretism in the kingdom of God. Once you begin to believe that you can do this and do this, even though it's a violation of God's word, you have become syncretistic. You have begun to put idolatry into your walk with God, and idolatry is what gets us in trouble. One of the reasons we talk about money is not because we, uh, uh, you know, are, are craving for your money. I know that's what the enemy will tell you. It's not that. It's that if you're not careful, money is actually can be a great blessing to the kingdom of God. But if we're not careful, it can actually become an idol. And that, that thing that was created to be a blessing now has something behind it that is actually drawing you away from having a heart that's totally committed unto the Lord. So how do I prevent that from happening? By going back and doing what God's Word tells us to do. All right. So anyway, you have the Logos Word and then you have the Rhema Word. What is the Rhema Word? That's the Word of God that God is breathing on right now for the moment. Right? And so the Rhema Word comes through Deborah. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In Matthew 4 and 4, when Jesus was dealing with the devil, the, the, the devil uh, uh, said, cause this bread stone to become bread, you know, and Jesus came back and he said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now what he was doing is he was quoting the word of God. Now here's the interesting thing. He wasn't just quoting any word of God, he was quoting the word of God that was pertinent to the battle and the situation he was going through at that moment. How did he know what the word of God was for that particular moment? You say, well, he was Jesus. Yes, he was Jesus, but remember, he had just been baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in him, the Holy Spirit upon him, the Holy Spirit was leading him, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him, this is the key for this battle, for this particular moment. This is the rhema word of God that you need in order to be able to deal with this situation. And so you have to be in in a, a, a relationship with God. You have to be in a position of hearing from God. You might say to yourself, I don't hear from God. No, the Bible says my sheep hear my voice. The only way you don't hear from God is if you're not a sheep. You're not a Christian, right? You say, well, I am a Christian. Then you hear from God. You say, well, no, I beg to differ. You, I don't. And I want to put a different perspective. You do hear from God. You're just not distinguishing God. You don't recognize God's voice. It's different than not hearing. Well, how do I get to a place where I learn how to distinguish God? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God. As you get into the Word of God, it will activate your sense of hearing, and as you activate your sense of hearing, you will be able to pick up what God is speaking to you. And when God speaks something to you, it has the, uh, the potential to build faith in you. Alright? So anyway, a rhema word is a breathed on word. It's a word that has the breath of God on it for your particular time and situation in life. Oftentimes when we get a prophetic word here in church, that is a rhema word. It doesn't violate the Logos word, but it's the breathed on word. It's what God is breathing on for that particular time and for that particular moment. We're not saying that all the Word of God is not relevant and pertinent. It is, but for this particular moment, the prophetic Word that's coming out is the breathed-on Word that the Holy Spirit is highlighting for that particular time. Am I making sense to you? Okay, so Deborah was a prophetess of the Lord. At the, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was not in people, but the Spirit of God would come upon people to help them to do what God had called them to do. She was a prophetess of the Lord, and the Spirit of God would come upon her, and Deborah was being moved upon by the Spirit of God to rally the people around the will of God to act on their behalf to bring them freedom. She brought the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was probably something we don't want to hear. If you'll get everybody together and get them ready to fight, God is going to bless your uh, movement. God is going to bless your willingness to go and fight. And He's going to defeat the enemy through you. Well, I don't want Him to defeat the enemy through me. I just want Him to beat the enemy for me. Right? Well, He will defeat the enemy for you, he did that at the cross of Calvary, but to bring victory in your life, he's going to use people. He's going to use you, and he's going to use the people around you. 
If you want to experience the victory of God, you need to be in relationship with God, but you also need to be in relationship with people. Because oftentimes the very victory that you need is found in someone else. All right. So the third thing we want to look at here this morning is that the people believed the Word of the Lord. Can you say the word believe with me? You see, it wasn't just they heard the Word of God, it's they believed the Word of God. See, a lot of times in, our, in today's culture, we think that if we've heard it, we've believed it. We think that we, if we know it, it's the same as believing it. No, you just know it. Right? You, it's, it's whether you're practicing it whether it determines whether or not you believe it or not. Right? Are you doing what God's Word says to do? If you're not doing what God's Word says to do, then biblically, the Hebraic way of understanding, you haven't grasped the concept and you're not displaying faith. Because faith without works is dead. Show me your faith. And the guy is saying, well, I have faith. He said, well, show me your faith by what you do. And well, I'm not doing anything. That's the point. And I'll show you my faith by what I do. Well, I believe in God. Well, do you go to church? No. Do you read your Bible? No. Do you pray? No. But I believe in God. Well, let me. I believe in God too. And so how do I know you believe in God? Well, uh, you know, my, my fruits are, are different. I've, I've got the fruit of a changed life. What I used to do, I don't do anymore. Uh, I try to do what God tells me to do. I've been baptized. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. Now, it's not about works. But you should have some fruit from what you say that God has done in your life. He said, well, I know God. Well, if you know God, why are you so mean and vile and bitter against people? I'm not talking to anybody here. I'm just talking about people out there on the Internet. There should be fruit in your life. There should be a, a difference in you. You should be experiencing and demonstrating the love of God through your life. Right. One of the people, one of the reasons people don't uh, have a hard time with church is because the church, more than off, more often than not, tried to exp to demonstrate the wrath of God and the ire of God instead of demonstrating the love of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God is not against sin, but God loves people. He won't accommodate their sin, but He will accommodate people. And as he accommodates people and they get to know him, it oftentimes is the catalyst to free them from their sin. But if we keep people away because of their sin, how many of us would have come close to the Lord? I wouldn't have. Because if you have to be pure and you have to be clean to come close to God, well, nobody meets that requirement. But Christ, what Christ is about is about reconciling the world to himself, but he's reconciling the world to himself because he loves the world. Right? Now, don't misunderstand me. Again, we live in a culture where it seems like you can be a Christian and do whatever you want. You can uh, uh, sleep around, you can drink, you can smoke, you can chew, date girls who do. Right? But don't tell me I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, are you, are you keeping His Word? No. You, see, they have this warped definition of grace. Grace empowers me to be able to do whatever I want and still get to heaven. No. Grace is the empowerment of God to free you from the bondage of sin. It empowers you to no longer walk in that, which as we looked at here a minute ago, which things that, that can overpower us, things can, that can get a hold of us, things can, that can keep us in captivity. God doesn't want you in captivity. See, people today will say, and I know I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but it, it's important to say, uh, people today will say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and God doesn't condemn, I can't read anywhere in the Bible where God contends smoking or God contends drinking or God condemns any of this stuff. I can do whatever I want and be a Christian. Well, there's some truth to that. You can uh, do things and be a Christian, but my question is to you is if you're a Christian, why do you want to do these things? Right? One of the things I told my kids uh, when, they, when they got older and they were getting out of the house, I said, remember what happened to your uncle so-and-so. Remember what happened to your uncle so-and-so. They thought drinking was fun because they, we grew up in the 80s of the 80s. I don't know what it was like in your uh, uh, era, but I, I, we grew up in the, in the decade of the 80s and everything was party time. 
and party time was associated with uh, uh, you know recreational drugs and alcohol. But now I have I had a brother that died because he got cirrhosis of the liver because for him one drink led to a lifetime of drinking and it took his life. And then I have another brother who's up and down because he uh, decided one night he was going to do a little bit of crack. Not realizing that he thought he was using crack, but crack ended up using him. And see, Christians nowadays, we're like, well, I can do whatever I want. You know, you can do whatever you want, but doesn't mean you're going to have victory over whatever it is that you're wanting to do. You know, well, I don't have the problem with alcohol, but what if one of the people that are around you is free to drink alcohol because you drink alcohol and they have a problem with it? You may have a tolerance for it, but I promise you, if you continue in that liberty somewhere down the road, it will exact a price from you. So why do we want to participate in something that's going to lead to our demise? Why don't we want to participate in something that's going to lead to somebody else's demise? Well, it's my body and I can do what I want. Well, that's true. But what about the body of your children and your great-grandchildren who are watching you? Love will keep me from doing something that I may be free to do, but I don't want to do because it's going to affect the people that I love. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Paul says, all things are lawful for me. He was quoting what the Corinthians were saying. All things are lawful for me. I can do what I want. But then Paul came back and he said, but not all things are beneficial for everybody else. Maybe I'm talking to somebody here, but maybe it's just that camera. All right? So anyway, the people believed the word of the Lord. Judges 4 and 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went at his heels and Deborah went up with him. When Deborah brought forth this rhema word, the people of God responded by acting on it. In reality, that's what we call faith. Faith is believing in what God says and beginning to put your life in conformity to what the word of God is calling for you to do. It's not dependent on the circumstances to bring it into action, but simply believes the word despite the circumstances. What was the context surrounding the issuing of the prophetic word? Because see, this is going to make a difference for us. Because we said, well, you know, uh, uh, yeah, they're calling out the army to go fight against an army. You know, no, you got to understand, this was not a standing army. These were farmers. These were uh, people that were working regular jobs. They were cobblers. They were carpenters. But they also had to fight for their families. What do you call that today? Uh, uh, militia? That's what they were. They were at this particular time. There was no standing army. It was a militia. Let me tell you what the circumstances were. First of all, it tells you what the enemy had. The enemy had 900 chariots. A chariot at that particular time was uh, 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 pulled by a horse, and it was kind of like the tank of that particular era. Right? So they're not just fighting an enemy. They're fighting an enemy that has technology that is far superior to anything they had because they didn't have any chariots. And God said, go line up against this army that doesn't have just one chariot, but has 900 chariots. Well, how are we going well, we to line up? We're going to line up and uh, uh, we're going to stand in front of these 900 chariots. What? Do you think these people didn't have faith? They believe the prophetic word. All right? So let me tell you something else. Not only that, the Israelites' military strength as far as armaments was almost non-existent. Because if you read the text in Judges 5, 8 through 9, it says, when new gods were chosen, war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. If you read that carefully, what you're going to find is that they had no swords and they had no spears, but the commanders rallied the people anyway. Anyway, Are you really telling me what I think you're telling me? Yes. Tanks, hand-to-hand -hand combat. But they lined up anyway. Why? Not because they're stupid. You might think that they're stupid. They're not. Why did they line up? Because the Word of God said, line up against these people and I am 
with you and I will give you victory. What's worse than that, that's a positive thing, but what's worse than that, God says, you line up and I'm going to provoke the enemy. (laughs) What? That's really the context of the passage. I'm going to draw him out. No, 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 no. I don't think, God, you and I are on the same page. I don't think you and I are thinking the same. That's correct. We don't think the same. God doesn't think in a losing manner. God thinks in a winning manner. God's not provoking a fight with the enemy for you to lose. God is provoking a fight with the enemy for you to have victory over an enemy that's keeping you captive. Yet in the midst of the situation, the word of the Lord comes forth and the people believe the word of God. How do we see that? Because they came when they heard and they lined up and prepared for battle without sword, without spear, against 900 chariots. They lined up for battle with nothing but a word from God. Why? Because they believe God. They believe the word of the Lord. They had faith in what they heard. James 2 and 17 and 18, I already quoted this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now the fourth point we want to look at is after they did all that, God was true to his word. God upholds his word. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. In Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return from me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. If we look a little deeper, we will see that as the people responded to the breathed on word from Deborah, the Lord didn't just leave them to fight by themselves. As the people obeyed God, God went to work. You see, God expects you to do your part, but He doesn't expect you to do what you cannot do. God doesn't, He's not, the victory is not yours, the victory is His. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. However, we do have a part to play. Right? So, in Judges 5 and 4, see, there are hints to what God began to do when the Israelites did what He called them to do. He said, line up against a chariot full-filled army and uh, with full of swords and spears, and we have nothing, but God said, do it, and so they did it. So then what happened? It says in Judges 5 and 4, if you were to study the text, it says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, Yes, the clouds dropped water. So first here we find that the Lord caused a severe rain to fall at the moment of battle. It didn't fall prior to battle because if the rain had fallen prior to battle, the people on the other side wouldn't have gone to battle because chariots don't do well in rain. So what are you trying to bring out? At the right time... God went before the Israelites and routed them by causing it to rain. Why is that important? Because the rains basically nullified the effects of the chariots as they were made inoperative. It wasn't just a light mist. We're talking about a great rain because the Bible says the river Kishon, I think is that what it was, was full. So why is that important? Well, I think uh, I, I go down every once in a while. With, uh, to, uh, uh, I get a chance to go visit uh, uh, the Fortners at their ranch up in Uvalde. And we got to cross over this uh, river that has no water in it. What do they call those things? Dry. Dry. <laughs> yeah. a, but they have this big sign. River, is it an oasis? River and oasis. But you look, there's no river. There's no water. There's no that. If you go down a little farther down the road, there's a little pool with water in it. But other than that, I said, this ain't no river. But why are those things there? Because when it does begin to rain, that thing floods 
with water. In fact, Bobby couldn't come home one time because it started to rain while he was there and it so filled the river that he couldn't get out. Well, this river Kaishan was similar. It hadn't rained. It wasn't it didn't have any water, but when the Lord calls it to rain, it rained so much that it prevented the, the, the chariots from coming over. And not only that, there were no paved roads back then. It got so muddy that the, the chariots bogged down in the mud and the people that were on these chariots, it's basically like their engines died and they had to get off. And then when they got off, they began to run. I guess they began to think God must be fighting for them. But this didn't happen before they lined up. It happened when they lined up. See, we often want God to answer our prayers before we do something. But that does, that's not the way it works. It's as we begin to trust God and His Word, that's what activates the heavenly realm to do what it's going to do. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying here. It's like I told you before, the man with the withered hand, right? Can't use it. And what did Jesus say? Stretch out your hand. Well, I can't do that. Why? It's it's worthless. It's useless. I can't stretch it out. That's my whole reason why I'm here. I'm telling you to stretch out your hand. I can't. And some people will walk away saying, eh, that Jesus don't know what he's talking about. But this man was smart enough to realize if Jesus said to stretch out my hand, he's asking me to do something I cannot do. But I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to believe what he says. And as he believed what he says, he began to do what he could not do. And the Bible says when he stretched out his hands, not before he stretched out his hands, but when he stretched out his hands, that's when the power of God hit him. And his hand was completely restored. You see, we often want God, we we say, well, God, if you'll do this in my life, then I'll believe you. God says, if you believe me, then you'll see me do that in your life. Second, the text reveals that the rains were the visible manifestation of what was going on behind the scenes in the heavenly realms. God's angelic armies were fighting. This was not just an earthly battle. This was a heavenly battle that needed earthly participation. In Psalms 103, verse 20 through 21, it says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts. That's talking about His heavenly hosts, His ministers who do His will. In Judges 5, 19 through 21, we see that the Bible says the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, this is back to our text, at the Tanakh by the waters of Medigo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. Now when the Bible talks about stars, it's talking about the angels of God. From heaven, the stars or the angelic hosts fought, and from their courses, they fought against Sisera. And remember what I said, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. When this move of God was perceived, the people went forth into battle. They went forth without swords and without spears, but they went forward in faith. And as a result, with a partnership of heaven and the partnership of earth, the enemy armies were routed. We want God to do all the work. We want the angels of God to do all the work. They can do anything. One angel can defeat a hundred. Uh, what was it? One hundred eighty thousand men. Uh, whenever they came up against Nebuchadnezzar, so it's not like God needs a lot of help. But God chose for heaven and earth to partner together and to work together. There's something about people of God that believe God and trust God because we've been given the authority from God over this planet. When we begin to do the work of God, the will of God, follow God directions it's not just you but it's God the angelic armies and you that go against the enemy and if God be for us who can stand against us there's this uh, great scene in uh, uh, one of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia series at the end there was this great army 
coming forth and uh, on the other side of uh, one side of a river of the enemy army on the other side of the river there was uh, the people that believed in Aslan who was a type of the Lord type of the Lord Jesus Christ well anyway they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and all of a sudden there had been sightings of Aslan but they kind of forgotten God they forgotten about God and they didn't let God really be all who he's supposed to be in their life and they were just trying to fight the battle in their own strength but there was one little girl who had faith and she saw him in the distance and she went looking for him and she met with up with him and she, she had an encounter with him and rendezvous with him and he said to her, I'm going to do this and here's what I need you to do. And so this great bridge in between the armies of the enemy and the armies of God and all of a sudden this little girl goes out. She didn't care about anybody else and they're wondering what in the world is she doing? She goes out and her weapon was a little dagger and because she'd met with the king. And the king says, will you do this for me? She goes out there and she stands on the bridge all by herself. And she pulls out her little knife. His little knife. Probably smaller than Brandon's knife. But not smaller than Bobby's. No. <laughs> pulls out this little knife. And everybody's going, what is she doing? And all of a sudden the enemy starts laughing and they start coming across the bridge. And when, she, when they did, then all of a sudden the lion roared. <sighs> I want to tell you right now in the heavenly realms I hear the lion roaring. He is roaring. He is this is not a fight that you that he's going to lose. God is stronger than anyone, anything. He is bigger than anything we can imagine. There is no mountain, there is no obstacle, there is no circumstance that can stand before God. And God is roaring. He's roaring because there is a people of faith that are standing with their little armaments and their little things. They don't know how they're going to do it, but it doesn't matter. Their confidence is not in them. Their confidence is not in their sling and in their stone. Their confidence is in the God that they serve and the God who said go and I will be with you and when that lion began to roar something happened that nobody expected all the enemy came out on the bridge and as they came out on the bridge what happened is that he had drawn them out and when they drew them out all of a sudden God began to fight in a way that nobody expected the waters came to life and the waters began to fight for the people of God you think it's just you. You don't know how God's going to do whatever He's going to do, but I want you to know that God can and God will act on your behalf. What He's looking for is not your, uh, your ability. What He's looking for is your willingness to believe God. Well, i got to get it all figured out before I'll get out there on the bridge. No, the girl didn't have it all figured out, but she knew the one that did. We've got to understand that God knows what He's going to do, how He's going to do it. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not for your glory. It's for His glory. But it requires us to believe and to stand. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. And, and when you do that, He will flee from you. Not because of who you are, but because of the God that lives inside of you. Judges 4, 14-16, Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? How do you know that? Because the waters were falling. The rivers were flowing. And Barak went down with men, with, uh, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And it doesn't say that Barak routed the enemy. It says the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hazareth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. You might say, well, where'd their swords come from? I would imagine they picked them up along the way. And the very thing the enemy went to, meant to take you out now became a, a, an armament that God used to take them out. Sometimes the very thing that God uses, that the enemy wants to use to take you out, whether it be alcoholism or pornography or, or uh, 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 anger, unforgiveness, whatever the enemy wants to use can all of a sudden become the place of your victory that God uses to set other people free. Mark 11, 22-23 says this, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. I think actually a better translation is have, have God-like faith. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, this circumstance, this obstacle, this enemy, this impediment, 
Whoever says to this mountain, you got to face it. you got to speak to it in the name of the Lord. Be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It doesn't say it will obey you. It says it will be done for him. Who does the work? God. As we've seen, as we conclude today in this account in Scripture, God responds to faith. It's not need that moves God. Let me say that again. It's not need that moves God. Well, God knows what my needs are. Yes, He does, but that's not what moves God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have compassion on you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't desire to do something in your life. Need does not move God. The Bible teaches us what moves God. right? It doesn't mean that God can't feel compassion either. And I'm not saying that need never moves God. I'm using a general principle that's saying it's not need that causes the power of God to flow in your life. What causes the power of God to flow in our lives is faith. Let's look at a few scriptures that describe and picture what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God issues a word, it births faith in our lives, and we begin to walk and believe and act as if what God has said is actually true. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, and this is what I meant, but this is what moves God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, first of all, that there is a God. He exists. And that He rewards those who seek Him. If I seek Him, I will see an answer to what God says. Because God is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. James 2 and 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If I truly say that I'm going to believe God, that it has to be visible in my life. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, not some, not most, but everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. At that particular time, to the Jews, that was the whole known world. You had Jews, and you had everybody else. They called them Jews and Greeks. Another translation says to the Jews and to the barbarians. Right? Everyone can receive from God. Everyone can experience the power of God. What is required? Faith. Listen, there's a Heresy going around today that when Jesus died on the cross, because of His work on the cross, everyone's going to have it. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It is a heresy. Jesus paid for everyone to have a right relationship with Him and for everyone to go to heaven. But without faith, you cannot appropriate what God has given and made available to you in your life. God will not take away your free will. God, the reason for the declaration of the Word of God is so people can know what God has done and in hearing, they can choose to put their faith in what God has done. But you can also choose not to. And God will honor your choice because that's what free will is. It is my sovereignty to choose. And so even though Jesus paid a price for everyone, everyone does not receive what Jesus paid the price for because in order to receive it, we must have faith. We must believe. And listen, it's not about being a part of a family that believes. You individually must believe. It's not about other people believing for me. When you stand before God, He's not going to ask you whether or not other people have believed for you. There are many, many people that are believing for you. Some that are even not living anymore have sought God for your life, for your salvation, because they were praying for you all those years ago that they were on this earth. There are people praying for you now, but all that prayer is to get you to a place where your eyes can be opened and you can see what God has done for your life, that you too may put your faith in Jesus, in Christ, in what He has done in your life. 
well, what if I don't? Then what God doesn't want to happen will happen, which is that you will partner and in partnership with the devil will end up in a place that was never created for you. It was created for the devil and his minions. But he will honor your choice to side with the enemy, to side with the devil, and the devil is going to the lake of fire, and if you choose to be on his side, then you're choosing to go there on your own. Well, people say, well, God's sending me to hell. No, God actually said, over my dead body will I allow you to go to hell. I heard that, and I'm going to use that over and over again because that's good. Romans 10, 8-13. But what does the Word of God say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For it's not everyone uh, will be saved. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in faith is the context, will be saved. Now how about you today? How do we wrap this up? Do you find yourself helpless in overcoming the situations you're dealing with in life? Are you experiencing the misery of being under the thumbs of a cruel and oppressing enemy? Well, I'm a Christian. That doesn't mean that you're not oppressed. These were the people of God, but they were being oppressed by the enemy. Why? Because they were going their own way, believing that being a person of God or a people of God, that God was just going to be with them whatever they did, not realizing that in doing what they did, they were forsaking God, and in forsaking God, their shelter, the, the wings that protected from them, they walked out from among them, and it allowed the enemy to do what he wanted to do in their life. So you can actually be sitting here today, have confessed the Lord, have given your life to God at some point in life, but you haven't been living for God, and the enemy is ravaging your life. And you're trying everything you can, and you're trying to get free, whether it be pornography, whether it be lewdness, whether it be uh, 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 infidelity, whether it be anger, unforgiveness, whether it be whatever it is that you're battling in life. It could be drugs, it could be anything. We're not saying that you never gave your life to God. We're not saying that none of that uh, ever happened. What we're saying is that you're not seeing Christ's victory in your life. Perhaps you thought maybe even that God is the cause of your misery. But in reality, I'm here to tell you that God is the worker of your salvation. Like the Israelites, if you today will humble yourselves, recognize your inabilities, recognize the Word of God that has come forth. The Word of God that's being issued forth here today. And if you will by faith call on Him and, and partner with Him, if you will put your faith in Him, He, like you did with the Israelites, will intervene on your behalf as well.